Good morning, or afternoon. Perhaps it's the middle of the night. No matter the time, you're in the right place. And today we are looking at Parsha Yitro, or Jethro in English. Perhaps the most central of all Torah portions, because it's the week we get the Ten Commandments. No small potatoes. Professor Fanny Bialik is back in the co-host seat and will continue our tradition of bringing on her incredibly smart friends to share some insight and wisdom. This week, it's Josh Dubler, author of Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison, and Break Every Yoke, Religion, Justice, and the Abolition of Prisons. He teaches religion at the University of Rochester, where he directs the Rochester Education Justice Initiative, which fosters higher educational opportunities for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people in the greater Rochester area. Currently, Josh is writing a book about guilt, and we'll ask him to apply his work on guilt to this week's theme of the Israelites engaging in a covenant and forming a new system of government. Josh is also excited to speak about something that I don't mention in the Torah summary. Namely, this Parsha starts with the naming of Moses and Zipporah's sons, Gershon and Eliezer. And we'll take a look at what the definition of those two names might mean in relationship to one another, and how the point in which this happens in the narrative could very well be the birth of both Jewish cosmopolitanism, the belief in forming community, and covenantalism, the agreement the Israelites form with God to follow the Ten Commandments as a central organizing principle. Like last week, I want to define a few things before we hop in. Josh mentions he grew up from, which is a stricter sect of Jewish orthodoxy, like we discussed last week in Shama's episode. We mentioned halacha, which is Jewish law based strictly on ancient rabbinic writings in the Talmud, and the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, which marks both the beginning of the harvest season and when Jews were given the Torah on Mount Sinai. Holidays don't always fall when the Torah portions are read, so sometimes you go back and revisit these parshiot when the holiday itself does land. Both Josh and Fanny mention Hannah Arendt, one of the most important political theorists of the 20th century. And I've actually been meaning to watch a fairly recent documentary about her called Vita Activa, The Spirit of Hannah Arendt. If you've seen it, let me know. While it may seem like a bit of a jump to be discussing guilt with the receiving of the Ten Commandments, we thought it was an important time, culturally, to be doing so. In conversation with our producer Evan, I talked about how this show is my own way of fighting against anti-Semitism, not by engaging with bigotry head-on, but by exploring and therefore owning my own faith and religion. Anti-Semitism is on an upswing at the moment, and I'm curious to know how guilt as a tool plays a role in holding people accountable and whether its usefulness applies in our contemporary world of divided realities. Sometimes it feels 
that by throwing attention on people via guilt, like conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene, we actually empower them. But then we can't stay silent either. I don't know. With all that said, Josh will recite my favorite line from Pirkei Avot, the Jewish book of rabbinic ethics, towards the end of the show, and I think it applies to these questions. If you have any thoughts about this or anything else we talk about today, hit us up on Twitter at study underscore show. And if you can, we love connecting with our listeners on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the study, where we're asking for whatever you can give. $5, $500, really anything. One of our patrons, Molly, told me about her connection with last week's episode and mentioned that as a new Jew by choice, she was lighting Shabbat candles for the first time, which is really heartening to think about how all of us are connected and grounded by these Shabbat rituals. So Shabbat Shalom, Molly. And I'll be thinking about all of you when Julia and I light our candles tonight. Okay, on to the show. I'm excited to welcome everyone to our 17th episode, Fanny Bialik. It is great to have you back. Thanks for having me. And today's guest, we have writer Josh Dubler. So excited to have you with us. Very excited to be here. Josh, you are currently working on a project about guilt, and uh, I know it's in process, but it seems like maybe you have a lot of guilt on your mind, which is very Jewish of you. And I'm wondering why study it. I sometimes think that I'm interested in guilt as a way of hiding from shame, which I find much more crippling. How would you define the difference between shame and guilt? So these are carved up in a number of ways, but the the way that I find most useful and um, why guilt is actually the the good one and shame is the dangerous one is that um, guilt inheres relative to an action and shame inheres relative to an imagined universal essence. So whereas shame produces flight responses and hiding responses, the hope is that guilt produces the possibility for atonement. Because if you're guilty for an action, there's a distance between the self and the guilty action, so one can atone. Whereas the, the shamed self, there's no, there's no escape from it, right? In, divi- in dividing guilt and shame in that context, do you think that there is a use for something like shame, though? Like, is, is there a good version of shame? Are there people who should be ashamed? Surely, right? You know, I mean, this is isn't isn't this in, in part a uh, um, the ongoing cultural brouhaha over cancel culture is in, in part a kind of wrestling with this. I do have a line. I mean, Jewish guilt, right? Is it's interesting, right? Um, and it, it pertains. And I, and I think when Jews talk about Jewish guilt, they think that they're talking about something that's trans-historical and kind of at the heart of the tradition, a kind of cultural proclivity. It, it seems that something interesting happens uh, toward the end of the 20th century, actually around the time that Jews cease to fear God and, and cease to practice halakha, in which this is a kind of cultural story that, it, that is told. 
right? And, and the story, it seems, in terms of what Jewish guilt is, and there are a whole other set of white, semi-quasi-ethnic guilts in the United States, uh, Catholic guilt, uh, even Midwestern Lutherans talk about Lutheran guilt. Um, the idea of Jewish guilt, it seems to me, is I'd like to be a fully free self, but I'm still somehow under the thumb of my tradition on the one hand, which makes freedom impossible, and I'm cursed with this more universal affliction of, of having been born to a mother, <laughs> right? So if you find in this discourse of, you know, you find it Philip Roth, Woody Allen, right? Jewish guilt is really a discourse that is at the expense of the mother. Whereas if you compare it to, for example, the way people talk about Catholic guilt, it seems to me that Catholic guilt, and again, this is, I'm talking about not something that's essential to the tradition, I'm talking about something that emerges at the end of the 20th century in, in the United States. Catholic guilt, you're also still unfinished because you're under the thumb of this residual religious pressure. Um, but there it seems like one ought to be a fully um, pleasure-seeking sexual self. But somehow it's impossible because of the church and Jesus or Mary or the sacraments or, or something that makes your body not quite your own. So... These, these discourses, um, these ways of thinking about guilt, these ways of talking about guilt, in some ways they come out of these religious traditions. And I think we can trace these back into the tradition, back in time. But they are also ways of thinking and talking about guilt that themselves scapegoat the tradition, mm -hmm. blame the tradition, try to differentiate themselves from the tradition, perhaps we might say as part of that tradition. And when you talk about them emerging from the tradition, you're talking about the belonging to the people as much as um, aspects of the tradition that might be uh, what what others think of when they think of religious traditions, like liturgy and uh, sacred texts and things like that. It sounds like your your description and your work at the situate at the end of the 20th century in America is more about these sort of identities as a people, um, as well as the rest of the religious tradition. No, I would say the other, oh. right? And there are a couple stories to be told here, right? And so one is, right, uh, Sigmund Freud as, uh, you know, coming from a family of rabbis, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and there, for sure, in thinking about religious practice as this kind of mass collective neurosis, um, he's thinking about, uh, you know, I, I personally think about shaking the lulav and, mm -hmm. and other sorts of, of incredibly irrational neurotic behaviors from his perspective, <laughs> right? And so there, that's where um, uh, religion is named in modernity as this kind of neurotic proclivity. And it, 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 that comes hand in hand with this emergence of this kind of, not just a secular, but a secularist orientation, right? Mm -hmm. that, that sees freedom and, and religious practice as mutually exclusive. The other thing is, is a bit, I, the other thing makes me feel more conflicted, right? And the other thing is this, like there's a standard account, or I take it as a standard account, you know, Will Herberg's Protestant Catholic Jew, 1955 sociology mm -hmm. um, of American religion, right? And there's so much, there's so much here, right? So like what enables um, Catholics and Jews, you know, Italians, Irish Jews to become white in the 20th century? Well, in, in part, it has to do with which peoples are excluded entirely 
by the 1923 Chinese Exclusion Act, that these kind of white ethnics are, are able to be assimilated. But his, his account is this, and he's kind of a neo-Orthodox character who feels a sense of loss about the people having drifted away, not from the identity of Jewishness, but from halakha, from, from a halakha, from the right? And this, the account he gives is this, which is that the contract of becoming American as a white ethnic is you give up your loyalty to another country. This is before the state mm -hmm. of Israel, of course. You give up your language. You keep your cuisine and you keep a Sunday school compatible version of your religious tradition. That was the mid-century contract. Mm -hmm. But that contract too was time bound. Mm -hmm. And so if you... You know, if you read Philip Roth, if you if you watch Woody Allen movies, what you find toward the end of the 20th century is a further drifting away. Mm -hmm. You know, Woody Allen in his movies, you know, if we could talk about Woody Allen. Um, he, <laughs> we could he, talk about Woody Allen. He's angry that there's no God, right? Yeah. That loss is for him and for that generation still palpable. But they're mm -hmm. moving further and further away from practice. And I think it's as... Um, Jews become less differentiated as they become less, live less in fidelity to halakha and live less in enclaves, then you have this, I mean, we, we know what, on the one hand what we have. We have the emergence of an identity that really is around these two poles of uh, the state of Israel and, and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. But in addition, you have these kinds of white ethnic rifts on what makes us special as a people. And my, and my sense about Jewish guilt is, yeah, it's a thing, but it doesn't seem that different from an ethnic perspective than from, you know how every town in the United States thinks that it's, um, that it's weather and that it's traffic is unique, <laughs> right? So like yes. you go to Cleveland and they're like, well, just wait five minutes, the weather will change, you're in Cleveland. And I think that's kind of like ethnic guilt, right? Because the weather, like traffic is a hell, and I'm sure that Cleveland traffic is its own particular hell. And weather is remarkable and a cause for wonder and despair. And I'm sure that Cleveland weather is particular too. And so Jewish guilt would be like this. Yes, um, uh, freedom is hard. Yes, we're <clears throat> shackled to the past in certain ways. Yes, our mothers drive us crazy. This is a story that we cobble together to tell a story about Jewish particularity, which is particular, but in the way that all the other peoples have similar particularities. And wait five minutes and you'll feel guilty about something else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the or the joke at, works in all contexts. So it's great. At the very <laughs> least, wait five minutes and you can, you can make a joke about feeling <laughs> guilty about something else, which will be a partial confession and a partial evasion of responsibility, I assume. Perfect. That's perfect. Yes. <laughs> Well, let's take a look at this Parsha, open it up, and uh, see what we can find. So we're in Parsha Yitro, which is the 17th Parsha of Torah. Now we're still in the book of Exodus. And picking up from where we left off, the Israelites are wandering through the desert, and we find Yitro, who is Moses' father-in-law. Moses' is? Moses' father-in-law, who is Zipporah's wife. And they're all reunited for the first time in a really long time. Now, due to the success of the liberation from Egypt and given Moses' is his status, he is constantly fielding problems and disputes from community members. It's like Lucy's help desk, but with a very long line. The Torah text says, from morning till evening. And Yitro, looking to help, says, hey, this is 
totally unsustainable. Why don't we lighten the load on you and build an entire judicial system? Uh, we'll pick from the community, fair people who spurn ill-gotten gain, and they can oversee the smaller issues and the major disputes people can bring over to you. And Moses says, that sounds really nice. I could use a lighter schedule. And so they go about to build this said system. Now, having started this new form of government and law, they continue on their journey until they set up camp at the base of Har Sinai, Mount Sinai. And at this point, God and Moses seem to be in regular communication. And God says, hey, I want you to bring everyone together and I'm going to show up in a big cloud of smoke like the beginning of a share concert or something, and their minds are going to be totally blown, and they will know to trust you. Oh, and one more thing. Whatever you do, don't let them up the mountain. And Moses is like, that sounds good. Everyone gets showered and ready for the show. They take their seats. The lights dim, and the mountain starts shaking. Smoke starts billowing. Jewish space lasers start lazing, and the sound of a shofar horn gets louder and louder, and suddenly thunder booms, and Moses says to the people, I'll be right back. He runs up the mountain. God is there and is like, okay, I want you to bring everyone up. And at this point, Moses says, but you just told me no one is allowed up here at all. And God says, oh, totally. I forgot. Go back down. It's showtime. God then says these now familiar words to the people. I am your God. There are no other gods. Don't make any statues of me. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. No murdering, no adultery, no stealing. Don't bear false witness. Don't be jealous of your neighbor's house, wife, puppy dogs, or anything else. The Israelites are like, cool. That's cool. Hey, Moses, can you ask God to tone it down? This is so freaking intense. We just got these laws. Somehow we are already feeling guilty. And Moses says, don't worry. He is just trying to freak you out. So you do not forget this. And they're like, definitely, we will not forget. We're just going to hang out at the back of the theater if that's cool. So Moses goes to God, who's like, is that too much? And Moses says, no, you did great. That was really moving and inspiring. God is stoked and tells Moses to go build an altar for sacrifices. And just before Moses turns around to do so, uh, God finishes this Parsha by saying, hey, Moses, one more thing. When you visit the altar, you know, for sacrifices, and Moses is like, yeah, don't like get naked or anything because that's just not cool. And Moses says, you got it, boss. And that's where we end this Parsha. So obviously this is a pretty big week in Judaism um, because we get the Ten Commandments, which, uh, you know, is a pretty big deal for us. Fanny, given that our guest uh, is Josh this week, could you just talk about, just to kind of eke out some of that relationship between guilt and Ten Commandments? What are we looking at here? Sure. So one of the, th the reasons I'm, I'm so excited to have Josh uh, with us this week, well, for many reasons, but it's that I think one reading of the Ten Commandments that we often hear in the Hebrew school context, uh, the Sunday school equivalent context that are part of the American contract, um, and that many of us might feel when we read the Ten Commandments is that these are, this is a guide, this is a guide to what we should feel guilty about. Um, so this is a guide to uh, the stuff that we should be thinking about, that we should be worried about, that we should be watching ourselves on. And while the rest of the, the Torah has so many other commandments, obviously, that you could feel guilty about, 
These ones stand out. They're obviously the most the most important, and they stand out in the sense of being things that feel ultimate in a different kind of way. So maybe you should feel guilty about breaking halakhic rules that emerge later, but these ones uh, sort of can help to create an overwhelming uh, sense of guilt throughout your life. Am I am I honoring my father and mother enough? Am I um, sufficiently not coveting my neighbors' uh, things and property and people and things things along those lines. So I think reflecting back on the distinction we started with, that Josh started us with, about guilt and shame, I think the Ten Commandments sometimes serve in people's interpretations to blur that line a little bit, that because they talk about these ultimate things um, and because they're so important, because they tell me these parameters for my life, not just instructions for certain activities, but this larger sense of being in the world, they start to be maybe a place where we can get to um, a form of shame, but because they're given as commandments, as these determinate laws, they give us guilt because we can think about whether our actions meet them. So that sort of starts to, in some ways, muddying Josh's much more beautiful distinction. So I'm, I'm curious, Josh, what you, if you can bring us back to a clearer distinction, is it okay that I feel guilty about the Ten Commandments? You know, I mean, who am I to judge? We're all doing the best we can. And... Uh, <laughs> I think whatever connection uh, the tradition affords you, you should go with that to the degree that it doesn't uh, cause you suffering or too much suffering. But um, I don't know if this God here uh, in this text, like, cares all that much about how you feel. You know, I mean into feelings and certainly something ha happens in the 19th century where you you know you get George Eliot and Jane Austen and Sigmund Freud and we get a lot of feelings and and we think about feelings of guilt that kind of subjective guilt which you know I'm not saying that it's uniquely modern although we seem to be pretty interested in it I take the kinds of the fealty and um, transgression that's sketched out here seems to me to be have a much more objective quality, right? Mm -hmm. How do you feel? I don't, I, you know, it's, you're, are you going to do the thing or not do the thing? Are you going to like cut down the trees on the Sabbath or not cut down the trees of the Sabbath? <laughs> and, and if you are, you know, and this is, uh, you know, there's a lot of awe here. There's a lot of power in this account. Mm -hmm. If you are going to violate these rules, bad things are going to happen like to you individually in the in the sections that are going to come after this we're going to find all sorts of transgressions for which the punishment is either death or this thing that's even worse than death right karate uh mm -hmm. being cut off or your mm -hmm. descendants will be cut off but this is a fierce god this is a you know he announces himself as a jealous god and maybe it's useful from a kind of ideology perspective like maybe it'll help keep you in line if you feel guilty, but that interiority doesn't seem to me to be of the essence here. This is a contract. Uh, this is about what you do and what you don't do, not about what you feel. I think I agree with you on the read of the Ten Commandments in basically all ways, but I do want to I, I do want to push an irony of this, which is for a set of commandments that's given to us not to be about interior feeling that's given as a foundation of the covenant, that's given as um, these objective laws that belong to a people and are not these uh, interior senses of who we could be or those sorts of feelings. 
This is a very dramatic Parsha. And the sense in which it makes you feel things and God is making the people feel so many things also seems important. And so in a sense, I wonder if the the way we could think about the role of feeling here is almost the inverse of the psychoanalyzed, Protestantized, um, George Eliot version that you're talking about, which is the, I've never thought about those three people in exactly that way before, but anyway, um, which is that the feeling is what allows us to be afraid of the objective world. The feeling is about the reality beyond ourselves. The feeling is not interior in the sense that it drives us inward, we need to discover something. It's not a feeling that comes out of a hermeneutic of suspicion, for instance, of trying to uncover why I feel this way. The reason I feel scared of God doing all these fireworks on the mountain is because they're really terrifying. Um, They're terrifying on the outside. They're not sort of terrifying somewhere deep inside me. And similarly, it seems like that's the way that the commandments should be working. They're terrifying on the outside. They're not the source of my interior complexes and guilt, no matter how much in the late 20th century um, Phil Broth and others help encourage us to to think about it as a complex. would, would you say that that's about where you're landing with feeling and guilt? No, that's certainly right. I mean, so like, right, the, the like the motif in the text um, and then throughout the rabbinic tradition, into up into contemporary English, God-fearing, fe- fear of God, right? And yeah. so clearly that is the awesomeness that we experience and that reenact, right? Because we also read these chapters uh, on uh, on Shavuot, on Pentecost, right? That, yeah, the, I think that that fear does play an edifying role in cultivating, you know, and I'll throw it back to you, you know, um, an ethics. You should fear God. What's concretized in this set piece at the heart, I mean, this really is, a, I'm flattered to be on this week. This is like the set piece at the heart of the whole text, right? Is like, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, right? Like, this is it. Friday night Shabbat dinners are one of our favorite ways to unwind, pause, and take a step back from the rest of the week. One Table is a way for folks in their 20s and 30s to make some Friday night magic by hosting new or old friends and plugging into the oldest well-being mechanism that exists, Shabbat. Taking local guidelines into account, One Table is currently supporting safe dinners outside at a distance, virtual dinners, solo dinners, and dinners for your household, because taking that breath at the end of the week is extra necessary right now. Check out onetable.org to get started. Josh, in preparing for this, you'd mentioned something that stood out to you which I hadn't appreciated, namely the naming of Moses and Zipporah's sons. You want to tell us what struck you? I was just so struck by these two, by the naming of of Moses and Zipporah's sons, Gershom, right? This incredible sentence that, you know, immortalized also by Robert Heinlein. Um, I was a stranger in a strange land, you know, a Ger, I was a stranger. And, uh, Eli Ezer, you know, uh, my God, God helped us. Just thinking of those two Jewish archetypes, Jewish moods, cornerstones of Jewish ethics, the experience of having been a stranger, that's there, you know, our, you know my, uh, my father was a wandering Aramean, right? There from the beginning, there in, in the destruction of the temple and exile and diaspora, being a stranger as a secular Jew who's occasionally observant, but mostly not. I really love that. 
I love that being a stranger, have the experience of being a stranger in a land and the kind of, of ethical universalism that that opens up in, in the tradition to open your door to uh, those you don't know. And then the, the other, this other motif of uh, that God helps us. Um, and thinking about these names, where they come in, in the story, how do you all read it? Like, what is the relationship between those two radicals? These, like the idea of the strange, is, is, God, is it God helps me by sparing me that experience? Is it God's help that, God's helped us that we, I will no longer have to be a stranger in a land? God sustained me when I was a stranger in a land. God helps me, but if I don't toe the line, I might be a stranger in the land again. Like, how do those two things play off for you? Being taken care of by God is something that I, I still am definitely exploring for myself. The idea of finding myself as a stranger in this world and trying to see the stranger in others um, is something that I can immediately relate to. And I love that about these texts. Um, but I do love the question is, uh, how does it, how does, how do these two brothers, it, it, it has to be um, important that they're brothers, that these two ideas show up at the same time, right? It seems notable that this is one of the few times uh, in the Torah that we hear about some pretty important siblings and we don't hear their birth order. Um, hmm. Maybe going to your point that there's, it's not obvious which one comes first, which one is the ser- in the service of the other. Um, and I love the way that you've put that question. I, I As I'm mulling it in my in my own mind, the sense that one comes first or one would be a background to the other, it's it like it looks like a Necker cube or something like it sort of pops in and out in that optical illusion way. Um, that it, it, the stranger in a strange land seems like it has to be the background um, at first, and uh, partly because the Jewish people story sort of starts there, the diasporic sense starts there, and and that sense of wandering seems like it has to be background because it's pastoral, basically, um, and to really make it aesthetic. But um, but I think that that as soon as I try to decide that that's the one that comes first, um, which is certainly closer to my own heart and diasporic Jewish experience, um, the the idea of care and, and aid and what that does for the wanderer um, or what it is to name your son that after having wandered or while wandering, um, is that naming in hope for, for more aid or naming in triumph for the aid that has been given, naming in gratitude? Um, all of these dimensions of it seem... Like they can occur to the diasporic wandering Jew in different ways at different times, um, and and that richness um, feels very lively, and uh, and maybe the gift of of the names themselves. So I I'm really grateful for thinking about these and that kind of relation and the the tension of not knowing what the relation should be except fraternal, I guess. There's also the the I, I it feels like maybe one is looking back and one is looking forward. You know, you were stranger in a strange land. Um, you have to take that forward with you. And as you go forward, know that th- you'll be watched over. Because um, uh, we're definitely at a... There's such a huge turning point here from kind of uh, all-out mayhem to some kind of rule of law, both this government that they've formed and now the divine law, which will um, set up our thousands of years of Jewish guilt for us, Uh 
and looking back and looking forward at the same time. I don't know. It's funny that you say the the point about looking forward and looking back because I thought you were going to do it the other direction. So the which which perfectly illustrates the tension. So um, you know, God God helped us. Um, God helped us in getting out of Egypt, and so I named my son God helped us because I commemorate that. Whereas now they're wandering in the desert and are not sure what their strangeness could be. So I think that. I don't think either one is right. They, the fact that both work um, and they occurred to us in the opposite direction immediately mm. as sensible seems like it perfectly illustrates the point of, of pulling these out as, as a core tension that, that frames our story. Yeah, thanks for thinking with me on this, right? And, and I, I do think it would be, I, when I first read it, I, I felt they were pitted against each other and that's that's a mistake. I don't think they are. But I do think that like, I am a, I was a sojourner in a strange land. This to me feels to collapse all distance in time, the seed of Jewish cosmopolitanism. And the other, the Eliezer, the articulation of Jewish covenantalism. The first is sociological. The second is, is, is like theosociological, right? But the first is also existential. I mean, the, the as is the second. So... So I think the this is why it has such a nice a nice quality to it. But I mean, the the diaspora, the cosmopolitanism could be sociological, but it could also be exactly the moment, as we learn from people like Philip Roth, could be the moment when we end up turning inward because we take our cosmopolitanism and our strangeness so much for granted that that becomes my thing instead of our shared thing. Um, Philip Roth is not as good a citation as someone like Hannah Arendt in thinking about the exceptional Jew, that uh, part of that Jewish cosmopolitanism can turn into this kind of... Um, interiority, this obsession with who I become, um, when it could have started uh, as I am a stranger in a strange land, but really we are strangers in a strange land and we do this together. So, uh, And then on the other hand, I think I, I want to push the helping, caring even more than the text allows, certainly. But I think the the helping and caring, the God, help, God cared for us, God helped us, that's a way of um, you describe it as establishing the covenantal, but it also establishes um, the relationship of um, of not knowing what we might need for ourselves. So part of the story that we've just heard in Exodus that's so moving is that at so many places in the story, it wasn't clear what was needed. Um, as I think uh, you talked about, Raviv, with Dr. Abdullah, the, the sense in which do we know what we want from freedom? Do we know what we want in getting out of slavery? Like what the care that is given is not always the care that we know how to ask for. And in that sense, it can become dramatically relational and also revelatory of the self and not just and not covenantal in the larger, um, more collective legalistic sense that we sometimes think of that, though, of course, there's a collective element as well. That pushes it way, way past where the text gives us. But which is, after all, the whole point of all of this. <laughs> I was curious, just because we have you with us, and next week we are going to be talking with Professor Kaya Stern about prison abolition, and that's a space that you've worked in and written about. Do you mind talking for a second about that work and how it might relate to this lineage of, of law and guilt and everything that we've talked about today? It's such a good question. Um I shared with Fanny this week the coda to a book I recently published with a philosopher a colleague, Vincent Lloyd, called uh, Break Every Yoke, 
uh, religion, justice, and the abolition of, of prisons. The premise of which is that because of the power of, of religion, because of who we are as a freaky uh, people, the social movements that have been able to move mountains have been uh, adept at speaking religious languages. And um, if prison abolition is to move from the margin to the center, then it needs to acquire a similar facility. I'm a committed prison abolitionist. I don't see how we can all agree that one person owning another person is a moral abomination, and yet it's somehow okay to uh, lock a human being in a cage. But the um, coda that I sent to Fanny um, was an attempt to answer this question. And I don't know the answer to this question. What, so, you know, I grew up um, from, and, uh, you know, with a, I, was, I was given a very intimate uh, connection to the tradition. And um, I don't know exactly how those particular experiences and commitments led me to embrace as an immutable uh, moral truth that uh, the prison is an abomination that needs to be removed from the earth. But the story that I tell at the end of the book, it begins with the experience of the Passover Seder. It begins with what is it to be a person who has been liberated when others are not yet free? And the, the uh, experience with these texts as a child, the, the obligation to a certain kind of iconoclasm, uh, the story I remember as a, as, a, as a first grader, right, this midrash of Abraham shattering Terach's idols, right, the, the uh, obligation to, yeah, to engage in iconoclasm against false idols and uh, the secular Jewish moral prescript that I found and I think others find in the work of Hannah Arendt in, in making sense of, you know, most of the, some people are morally lucky, and uh, you don't have to ever find out uh, if you were living through great atrocities, how would you respond? And others are less morally lucky. The takeaway from Aaron in Jerusalem is, you, you know, and this to me is like, this is kind of the, the, the American Cold War processing of the Holocaust as, an, as a moral event, right, which we process through pop events like the Milgram experiment and the Stanford prison experiment, right? And which are terrible misreadings of Aaron's work. But the point is like, no, it's on you. It's on you. Um, and even if that means that that's going to cost you your life, you know, as Aaron said, there are no dead effects. Like you got to, you got to do it. Right. And so in the age of communicative capitalism, what this means is you've got a million people uh, saying a million things on social media. I, I don't know if um, if that's what we're required to do. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we might not be morally lucky in this regard. When you live in a society in which certain peoples are systemically crushed by state violence, um, I don't. I, it's not clear to me. You know, if, if only it were so simple to. Uh, um, either uh, do a social media post on the one hand or storm the Bastille on the other. You know, I, as I conclude the, you know, um, right? This is the, um, it's not your job to finish it, but uh, you can't exactly sit idly by either. My favorite line from Pirkei Avot, or the Rabbinic Book of Ethical Teachings, Josh Dubler, 
Thank you so much for taking the time today and uh, thinking through all of this with us. Uh, I, I love this project that you all have, and uh, I'm, I'm quite uh, grateful to have uh, been included in it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much <laughs> for being here. Thank you, Fanny, and uh, for everyone out there listening, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host today was Fanny Bialik. Our co-host was author Joshua Dubler. Artwork by Julia Pott. We'll see you next week.